Well, good morning, church. I know this morning um, we gather with sadness as we share in the loss of uh, Pastor Jeff's uh, father. And if you're not familiar uh, with what I'm uh, talking about, let me uh, read an email to you um, that Pastor Jeff sent out to the church family this morning. Uh, He says, it is with deepest sadness that I let you know that my father died yesterday. Uh, This is beyond shock to our family, Um, and in light of this, we're gonna we're gonna postpone tonight's family dinner, which we had scheduled here. Um, So we're still trying to figure some things out and make arrangements. He asked that we pray for his family, uh, pray for his stepmother Pia, his brothers Mark and Andrew. Uh, Also pray for Molly and Lane and Amelie as they're uh, making their way uh, back to Covington, just kind of scattered throughout the country right now from college or whatnot. They're just trying to get back. Um, so we ask that we join with him in prayer uh, as we grieve um, this loss, uh, but we do so with the focus of the eternal hope we have uh, from Christ. And so we will do that uh, in just uh, a brief moment. Uh, but like I said, in light of this news, we are going to be canceling our family dinner tonight. Uh, a couple other things just so that you can be aware. Uh, we do still have men's training scheduled this Wednesday, uh, 6 a.m. And then, ladies, you have a uh, brunch coming up on April 2nd, uh, 10 a.m. here. So if you want to mark your calendars for that, it's something that the ladies will be doing uh, shortly. Um, I will, in just a moment, pray for our offering. Uh, But before I do that, let's go ahead and release the kids. So, kids, if you are um, in kids' ministry and would like to head that way, please make your way over uh, to that side. And we do like to highlight at this time uh, just our offering, ways to give. Uh, There's a a box at the back of the room uh, for you to drop checks or cash in. You could also give online or uh, send a check in the mail uh, to the church. But we just want to be generous the way that Jesus and God is generous to us. We want to reciprocate that generosity uh, to him. And so uh, we are going to go to the Lord in prayer, uh, thanking him for the blessings uh, that we have from him, but also... Uh, Let's just spend a moment in prayer uh, for Jeff and Kathy and the entire family. So would you all please uh, join with me um, in prayer. Father God, um, we come before you this morning uh, with hearts a little heavy, uh, just sharing in the loss of life of the Earhart family. Uh, God, right now I pray that uh, Jeff and Kathy and the kids and his brothers and all involved would feel the comfort of your love, would feel the peace that um, can really only come from you, Jesus. And I just ask that the church in this time, we would, we would surround that family, uh, that we would love on them, that we would uh, raise them up in prayer. And uh, as Jeff articulated at the end of uh, just the email, that we know our eternal glory and hope is in Christ. And as we as a church uh, declare, Jesus, you are preeminent in everything. Um, that's what we mean. We mean everything. And so, uh, Jesus, I pray that we are comforted uh, by this light that we know that we have in you, that in dark days we can uh, know that we can turn to you in moments where um, maybe uh, the seasons of our lives uh, seem a little more painful or a little more hurtful. 
Um, Jesus, we know that you are uh, a loving uh, Lord who wants to uh, meet our sorrow with joy and love. And so, God, I pray um, that that is experienced right now. I also want to take this moment to just uh, thank you for the blessings that we have in our life. Uh, Thank you that um, you sustain us and you provide for us. And uh, Father, I pray that we would respond uh, to those blessings um, in return by uh, just being generous with the things that you've given us. So bless, bless this time of offering. I pray, pray that you use um, these gifts to advance your kingdom, God. Uh, we love you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So I will, uh, I will be sharing uh, from God's words with you this morning. And uh, when Jeff called me yesterday and asked me if I can do this, um, I, without hesitation, told him that I could. Uh, but if I could just be honest... Um, Kind of this morning is just going to be some things that I'm sharing with you from my heart, uh, things that God has allowed me to be dwelling on the last uh, really few weeks. And so this is just me kind of opening up. Uh, here's, here's what I'm thinking about as I, I kind of journey with the Lord. And so uh, this all started, uh, well, actually, let me back up. Uh, maybe you've heard this before. Um, and it's something that I think is pretty common, especially in my profession. I'm a teacher, but maybe you've heard this. The, the expression goes, you know, there's no such thing as a bad question, right? Or maybe there's no such thing as a dumb question. You've, you've heard that before, right? Well, someone who has like 15 years of experience in education, um, I can tell you quite simply that that is a lie. Um, there are, in fact, a lot of bad questions, And if I'm being really honest, some of them are really dumb, too. Uh, You get several of these sometimes in a day. And I get the heart behind that. The heart is like you want to encourage curiosity. You want to encourage people to be asking things. You don't want to clamp that down because it's how we discover the world and how we learn stuff. And I understand all that, right? But the reality is sometimes questions aren't that great. But I had a a student ask a question um, to me in class. It was probably a couple months ago. And it was, it was an amazing question. It was one of the greatest questions that I've heard. Uh, I'm going to share that with you in a minute. Maybe you might not think it's that great. But for me, it was, it was really it was pretty awesome. Um, and so let me give you some context into what we were doing in my class and, and how this question came up. And so um, I teach Bible, uh, which is pretty cool. I get to go to work and teach Bible uh, to kids. And so we were talking about um, what does it look like? When Jesus saves us into his family, adopts us into his family, what does it look like to be citizens in this new kingdom? Um, Because right now, without Christ, we're walking around sort of this kingdom of earth, kingdom of man. But Jesus saves us and he he grafts us into this kingdom of heaven. And so uh, he's Lord of our life. He rules and he reigns. He's kind of we're we're now citizens of a new kingdom. We operate in a different way. And so uh, we were watching this video. There's some guys out there who do this thing called the Bible project. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but some really top-notch quick videos of just how to look at all of scripture uh, with this narrative kind of running through it. Um, And they started off this video by saying that scripture is this uh, big giant narrative of uh, really God trying to get back to the garden of Eden, pretty much, that he's trying to reunify heaven and earth. And so they kind of give you a quick little flow through the timeline here that God, when he created the world in Eden, 
Uh, it was perfect. He declared all this really good. And the way that he created the world, it was this unification of God's presence and his creation of man. And so they existed together in this garden. But we know how the story goes is that Adam and Eve sinned. And because of that, all of a sudden, uh, these two things became separated, right? So God's intent behind creation was that heaven and earth would be unified always, that man and God would be able to be one with one another together. But because of sin, these two things got separated. And all of a sudden, there's now two different kingdoms. There's God's kingdom, kingdom of heaven, and then there's man's kingdom, kingdom of earth. And these two things were kind of separated. And we see all through scripture, God's attempt to reunify these things. And so in the Old Testament, uh, God makes his presence amongst the kingdom of earth, kingdom of man, uh, in things like the temple. And it was very kind of isolated existence to that one physical place. And man was able to access God's presence through things like animal sacrifices. Don't really know why or how that works, but uh, the blood of animals provided a space where man could walk into the temple and be uh, seen as clean. And so in that brief moment, God and man existed, unified the way that he intended in Eden. And this kind of was how uh, things happened in the Old Testament. And then we get into the New Testament when Jesus comes, uh, and Jesus is now the new temple. John 1.14 says that the word Jesus, he became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And that word dwelt is the same word used for the temple in the Old Testament. And so now Jesus, God's presence, it was no longer isolated to this one physical location, but now his presence was sort of mobile and he could walk around the earth and his presence came with him in the form of Jesus and man and Jesus were able to interact. Uh, John the Baptist talked about Jesus. He said, um, when, when he talked about Jesus, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that God's kingdom was now being kind of embodied in the life of Jesus and being brought out to uh, people. And it's because of God's presence in Jesus, now all of a sudden these little pockets of heaven were being able to be experienced by people kind of all over the world. Wherever Jesus went, that's where heaven went. And so people were able to experience this. And then we know the story of Jesus culminates in the cross. And at the cross, this is where all of sin was absorbed. And just like in the Old Testament where those animals, the blood of the animals created a space where God and man could be one, the blood of Jesus created a space where God and man could exist. There could be a shared presence there. And so the unification of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, they kind of have this space now in the middle where Jesus's blood atoned for our sins and we're able to be in God's presence while still being here on this earth. And then the story goes, the videos we were watching, it kind of talks through um, how God in the end, ultimately um, heaven and earth are going to be united through Jesus coming again the second time. And we see in the book of Revelation, uh, this unification of heaven and earth is depicted as a city uh, of God's creation and the creator being able to exist as one in this same presence. And so that's kind of the context for this question. All right. So here's the question that was asked that I've been thinking about ever since it was asked. The question the student asked me was after seeing this, hey, why would the unification of heaven and earth be experienced as a garden in Genesis, but a city in Revelation? And kind of heard it, and I sat there for a minute, and, you know, when you're a teacher and you're kind of putting the spot in front of everybody, they're expecting you to say something. And so I just was honest, I said, hold on, let me, let me think about this for a second. And so I said, look, I don't, there's no, like, verse in Scripture that's going to give you this answer, but let me just sort of give you the way that I'm thinking about this. And so I told her that um, because, so your question was, why was it 
a garden in Genesis, but a, a city in Revelation? And my answer was, is because I feel like that would have been the natural progression of what Adam and Eve would have done had sin not happened. And so in Genesis, we, we uncover something that uh, we call the cultural mandate. Uh, we learn in Genesis chapter 1 that we're made in the image of God, that God gives Adam this command to uh, be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it. God kind of gives us uh, his authority to uh, exercise that over all creation. And then in Genesis chapter 2, uh, we, we learn that Adam is placed in a garden to tend it and to keep it. And so if Adam and Eve didn't sin, what you have is two people being obedient to God. Uh, one garden that they would have tend and kept and cultivated would have became uh, two gardens that, would have, that they would have tend and kept and cultivated. And then that would have became three. And then four it would have uh, multiplied, as God said. And then one family would have became two families, would have became three families. And all of a sudden you have a bunch of families and a bunch of gardens and you have a neighborhood. And now you have, you, know, you see what I'm saying? It's the natural progression of what would have happened if they would have been able to abide by the cultural mandate without the impact or uh, effects of sin. And so that was my answer. I said that um, that's, that's why I think it's a garden in Genesis and a city in Revelation. I was like, look, I could be wrong, but that's just me reading Scripture and trying to put two and two together. I said, but what's more important about this, and this is where I've been kind of stuck in the last few months, is um, it puts us in this timeline of being in the middle of that. Right, So uh, in 2022, um, we obviously exist after the Garden of Eden happened, but we haven't had Jesus come back yet. So this new city, this new Jerusalem hasn't happened yet. So this sort of frames our existence. We're, we're on this timeline of, of moving towards this reunification of heaven and earth through Jesus' second coming. And for me, that has huge implications, I think, for how, for how I live my life. Um, and that's sort of what I want to share with you this morning, these thoughts that I've uh, been going through. And so the text that we're going to look at, um, it's in Nehemiah chapter 5. And this is a very brief mention of a verse, but if you want to turn there, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. It's Nehemiah chapter 5, 1. And in Nehemiah chapter 5, 1, the text reads this. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. And that's it. We're going to stop right there and dwell on that uh, for a minute. But the word I really want to focus on is outcry, right? Um, Outcries are startling, are they not? Right? Like outcries command our attention. So when Nehemiah said there arose a great outcry, it was something that grabbed his attention. This is why, you know, you can't yell shark at the beach or fire in a building, or bomb at an airport. It's because these outcries sort of startle us. They jolt us. They get our attention. Um, In 2018, when we were moving from uh, Covington to Pittsburgh, our daughter was nine months old back then, and she was an awful car rider. Like, she couldn't be in the car for longer than 30 minutes, or she would just, I mean, she would start screaming and yelling. And so, my wife and I are like, oh, great, we have a 17-hour drive from here to Pittsburgh. How, how is this going to work out? And so we really weren't in a crunch of, for time to, like, get there. So we're like, you know what? We're just going to take it nice and slow. We pulled out a map, and we're like, where are all of our friends that live in the United States? Where are the cities that we want to go visit? And we're just going to make this huge, long road trip out of it. And we're going to not drive for longer than three hours at a time. We'll stop. We'll stay with friends when we can. We'll get a hotel when we need to. And 
So we just plotted this path, and it wasn't the most direct path to Pittsburgh, but it was like a three-week road trip that we were taking and hanging out with friends, visiting people. And so we were in Chicago, uh, spending some time there. And I remember just pushing my daughter uh, in a stroller, and she at that point was just really attracted to like movement, right? I mean, kids are kind of like that. They see activity and they're kind of drawn to it. And so Chicago for her was really awesome because there was movement everywhere. And you walk on a city block and there's people all over the place and it's busy and there's noises and there's things happening. But I think it became a little too overwhelming for her because on this one particular day, we're pushing her and she just starts screaming, like not crying, screaming, like upset. Just, I don't, that was her natural reaction. Ah, she's just screaming, screaming, screaming. And she was doing this block after block after block and we couldn't, couldn't get her to be quiet. She was making an outcry. People were looking, right? And they had this one guy who uh, I think he was concerned because he kept sort of looking over and we kept walking the next block with him. And my daughter's just screaming the whole time and kind of got the sense that he was wondering what was going on. And for those of you who don't know, our daughter's adopted. She doesn't look like me or my wife. And so my wife at one point just looked at the guy and said, look, I know she doesn't look with me, but look like me, but I promise you she's mine. You know, like wasn't, wasn't trying to kidnap a kid or anything, but, um, look, outcries have a way of catching our attention, right? And today what I want to share with you and have us consider is, uh, just what are the outcries that are out there in, in our world? What are the things that are commanding our attention? What are the things that we hear that are jolting us and startling us and, and grabbing our attention? Just some background on what's going on in Nehemiah at this point in the story. And so uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish people, God's people, they were unfaithful, didn't really keep God's commands. And so he allowed them to sort of be captured and be put in captivity and they were exiled away from their homeland. And Nehemiah kind of uh, is living at a time where um, you know, the, the Persian Empire is sort of taken over from the Babylonian Empire, and little by little, they're allowing Jews to go back home to Jerusalem, to their homeland. And so Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah starts off where um, some of the Jewish people have been allowed to go back, and some of the Jewish people were still in exile. And so there's a, a story that comes to Nehemiah while he is in exile of a report of what his homeland is going through. And in this story, uh, we learn that um, this, this report to Nehemiah, it, it kind of gives the state of Jerusalem that it's kind of a broken down city. Um, walls around it are broken down. People are suffering. Uh, it says that they experience great trouble and great shame. And we get to see a little bit about the heart of Nehemiah. It says in verse, uh, or it says in, in chapter one that Nehemiah heard this report. And what he did is he wept and he mourned for days. He heard of, of what was going on to his people. And that, was, that prompted him to weep and to mourn and to have sorrow for what was going on. We also learned that Nehemiah had a pretty prominent role uh, in this Persian empire. Even though he was in exile, he was serving as a cupbearer to the king. Uh, if you think about that, to me, if I'm the king and I've just captured or I, I ca- I'm, I'm overseeing people who are captured, I don't know that I would trust them uh, with a position like being cupbearer. But Nehemiah, we learn, is a, a trustworthy guy. He gets the the king's favor, and he's uh, cupbearer to the king. And so what he requests of the king is, can I go back? Can I go back to Jerusalem? Can I go back to um, help kind of address some of these um, things that I'm hearing? And what the king does is not only does he allow Nehemiah to go back, but he gives Nehemiah letters to kind of carry with him on his journey so that if he's stopped, he's able to say, look, I'm actually like, 
I'm sent by the king. This is okay. And he kind of gets his passage to Jerusalem. Uh, the king makes sure his passage to Jerusalem is going to be okay. And so Nehemiah lands in Jerusalem. He starts inspecting the walls that are uh, broken down. And it says in verse uh, 17 of chapter 4, as Nehemiah is assembling a team of people to help rebuild this wall, um, it says that in one hand, they held hammers uh, for the rebuilding. And then in the other hand, they held swords uh, to, to sort of be ready to protect themselves against any sort of invasion, right? And so imagine just that sort of posture uh, in this story. It's this, it's this one side, you're focused on the job at hand. It's this other side of being vigilant at what's happening around you, ready to, on a spur of, no, or spur, or spur of the moment's notice, like jump into action, right? And so that's sort of this balance that these men um, were having as they were uh, building this wall. And so this is where this verse pops up in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. It says, there arose a great outcry. And the outcry that Nehemiah heard and what was happening was this injustice to the Jewish people because there was a group of Jewish people who were the working, kind of wall-building, city-defending Jews, right? They every day were doing this task of building and defending, building and defending. And what happened is they were not able to, you know, work their crops. They were not able to harvest any food. They were not able to, to do any of that because they were so busy. And so uh, there was another group of Jews who were the non-working Jews. They didn't, they didn't participate in building the wall. They were kind of trying to run the city. But what they were doing is they were imposing these taxes on their Jewish brothers and sisters that the people who were building the wall couldn't pay because they weren't doing a job to earn any money. They were building a wall that wasn't paying them anything. And so all of a sudden you had this sort of injustice happening where within their own people, this sort of upper class uh, citizen was imposing taxes on this lower class citizen. And Nehemiah heard this outcry and he was outraged because what was happening is people in order to pay this tax, they were, they were selling their fields. They were selling kind of the land that they're inherited from their, their fathers and their families. They were selling that off in order to satisfy this tax. And in some cases we learn in chapter five that they were actually selling their own children in order to satisfy this tax. And they weren't getting these children back, right? And so Nehemiah was naturally very outraged against, uh, about this because it was his own people doing this to his own people. It wasn't an outside foreign ruler or uh, government or system. It was all in-house. And so Nehemiah was super, super angry, super, super upset. We learn in chapter 5 later on that he has a meeting with the nobles and the officials, these non-working Jews, and he basically just calls them out and he rebukes them. He says, what you're doing is wrong. You're, you're hurting your own people. And um, they agree to restore uh, things, to stop doing this tax. And we also, again, just learning more about the heart of Nehemiah. Uh, because he was governor of Jerusalem at this time, the, the law was kind of established before he got there that every day there was a certain allotment that was given to the governor. People would kind of collect their crops, collect their money. And it was kind of like a, a ration that they would leave at the governor's uh, house so the government could do his day job. He wouldn't have to worry about that. And so he'd have food and money to live on. What Nehemiah said is, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop collecting this and I'm going to redistribute it to all the people. So we learn a lot about the character and the heart of Nehemiah. And as I'm reading this story, I guess the question that uh, in my life keeps coming up, and it's the question that uh, I want to share with you this morning is this, is when is the last time that you've been so moved by an injustice that you could no longer sit still. 
In other words, what are the outcries that you hear in your life? What are the things that are so loud that you can't ignore, that startle you, that jolt you, that move you into action? Um, We may not be building a wall, right? We might not have the hammer in our hand ready to build a wall. We might not have a sword in the other ready to defend against an attack, but God's called all of us to a task. And for some of us, that task might be, it's just, you know, natural to your season of life. So maybe some of you are students, you're studying in college and you're preparing for that career, that future that you're going to embark on. Maybe some of you have spouses and you're involved in a marriage and you're trying to cultivate and grow that marriage. Maybe some of us are uh, blessed with children and we're uh, knee deep in parenting, trying to just disciple our kids and trying to figure out how to turn them on to following the ways of Jesus. Uh, Maybe some of you are just an employee at a business and you're just trying to help that business succeed. Maybe some of you actually own the business and you're trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, manage everything that's under uh, your authority. Like we're all called to a task, right? That's the, that's the hammer in the hand thing that we're doing. Um, But we've also been uniquely positioned to have a sword in the other to be vigilant, to listen to outcries, to respond to injustices that are out there uh, in the world. And um, as we're we're talking about this this morning, uh, and as I consider this even for myself, I often ask myself, like, how come I don't always hear the outcries? Or how come I don't always respond to the outcries? And as I'm kind of coming up with answers for this, uh, for me, it's, I go back to thinking about Adam and Eve and that serpent in the garden. And how Satan is really crafty and he's really good at deceiving us. He's really good at making us follow or believe something that is a lie or that isn't true. And I think one of the things that um, Satan is really great at in this day and age is he's allowed us to somehow be okay with chipping away at people's humanity. And what do I mean by that? Um, It means that we somehow, in some way, shape, or form, will dehumanize people um, kind of turning them into objects or ideas. And in the process of doing that, we, we lose a sense that they're really all made, we're all made in the image of God. And so what does that look like? Well, it could be something um, as severe as human trafficking, where you take a person and all of a sudden they become a commodity. You make them a thing to satisfy the desires of someone else. And we've just objectified a person. We've stripped away their humanity a little bit. Or think about all the isms in life, right? Ageism, classism, racism, sexism, um, all those things strip away at people's humanity. You take a group of people and you consider them inferior based on some attribute that they have. And maybe it comes across in a bad joke or a name that we call someone else, but it's this little chip away at people's humanity. And when we do that, we turn them into objects or ideas. Or how about, how about what's going on right now in our world, right? Like, We see on the TV what's happening over in Europe, and without any sort of connection to that, it's it's almost like it's just an idea. Like it almost doesn't seem real. It almost seems like you're you're watching another show on Netflix or something. You're watching this this awful conflict unfold, but because there's no connection, it's it's this idea, and so little by little, it kind of chips away at people's humanity. Um, I had the, the speaking of Ukraine and Russia, and and this is. Um, something that I learned this week that kind of connected me into this story uh, a little bit more is um, a few years ago, 
there's, a, there's a dear friend of mine who, actually, let me back up to several years ago. So 2007, okay, uh, there's a pastor, his name's Avidiu, and his wife's name is Adina, and they're from Romania, and they were doing this tour of America, kind of uh, meeting with different churches, different people, sharing their story of their dream, this thing they wanted to do in Romania, and they wanted to build uh, an orphanage in Romania, and they wanted to call it House of Joy, and what a cool name for an orphanage, if that's what you're going to put on your sign, that this is a, this is a house of joy. Um, just some, some, some content for Romania. They, uh, like 1989, I think, was a civil war that they had, so it's pretty recent that their country's kind of gone through a lot of like uh, overthrow in terms of just who was in charge, now there's new leadership, and there's just this kind of a political struggle there. What this pastor was saying is that over the last few decades in Romania, um, the government was really big on growing the popula- population of Romanian people. And so one of the things they did was they, uh, they banned contraceptives across the country. And what this pastor was sharing is that uh, in some cases, the government would actually raid homes and like that's what they were looking for. They'd throw contraceptives away if they found it. And so you had this sort of population boom happening in Romania, um, but people didn't have a way of caring for their kids. And so... Uh, these, these men and women who were having children would often leave these children with grandparents. They would go to other European countries and work to send money back home. And in a lot of cases, you had grandparents raising over a dozen grandchildren in this little bitty house. And uh, there were also some rules on uh, outside adoptions. They kind of banned foreign adoptions of Romania kids. And so this pastor was just sharing, look, there's, there's kids everywhere. And um, people are being overwhelmed, and, and we just need to provide a place, a house of joy, where we can help teach them uh, who God is and that there's a God who loves them. And so he was sharing this vision, and a dear friend of mine uh, who was teaching at Northlake at the time just fell in love with it. And she, she heard his story, and she's like, I'm going to help you. What do you need? And he said, well, the thing we need right now is we need some seed money for a loan because I've got the land where I want to build it, but I can't get the, the loan because I need the deposit for it. So we're trying to just raise the money for the deposit. She's like, I've got it. So she spent all year with her seventh grade students raising money for this pastor. And they raised enough money to help him get the loan. So pretty cool. Like they were able to participate in this story. Well, fast forward to 2011. um, That same teacher uh, had been in contact with this pastor the whole time. And they organized a trip with Northlake students where they took a group of students to Romania And they actually helped on some of the construction that was happening on that piece of property that they helped build. And what was cool is some of the kids on that trip, who are now juniors and seniors, were in class in seventh grade who were raising some of that money. And so they were able to see sort of what was happening, right? A few years later, 2015, um, I get to go on a trip to Romania with this teacher. And we get there with some students, and we're staying in the House of Joy. We are the first group that gets to stay in this completed orphanage that this project that they were working on and um, it was cold they had one little like uh, wood burning stove in the lobby the heat wasn't hooked up yet and everything was like brick and and tile so there was no like good insulation and I just remember being cold a lot Um, but we stayed in the rooms we ate our food in the kitchen like we were there we put on like a VBS for the children there and it was awesome it was a great time we actually had an Easter service because we went during Easter uh, Sunday morning there Um, But what I found out this week is that pastor uh, had been able in some way to get refugees from Ukraine to come stay in the house of joy. 
And so they're housing over 150 refugees uh, in, in this house of joy right now. And so all of a sudden, what was an idea on the television screen, I became kind of intimately connected to because of that shared experience. Like, I remember what those rooms look like, and I can envision in my head what those people are staying in because I was there. And so there was a shared experience that kind of brought the humanity back into the situation, right? And it's that shared experience that unites all of us. And so let's jump back into these outcries, right? Um, Whether or not you have a shared experience with people from Ukraine or whether or not you have a shared experience with orphans or or whatever it is, um, we all have a shared experience in this way. All of us were made in the image of God. All of us are broken because of sin. And all of us are in need of a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. And so... That, sh- that shared human experience, it should bring us together to see the common dignity and humanity in all people. And so how do we respond to all of this? When we hear outcries, when we recognize injustice, what is our role in all of this? Um, I think we look at the life of Jesus and we realize that he responded to injustice with justice. He responded to suffering with mercy. He responded to the marginalized by loving people. Um, Jesus, Jesus was called by many people a friend of sinners. That's because he hung out with sinners. I mean, that's, that's why he got that nickname. He, he embraced the outcasts of his day. He uh, welcomed tax collectors and prostitutes. He welcomed the lowly. Uh, he had no problem hanging out with children. He had no problem hanging out with women. Um, he touched the unclean. He had no problem interacting with lepers and people who needed to be cleansed and people who were sick and inflicted. He had no problem with any of this because he saw the humanity in all people. And so we take our guidance from Jesus. We recognize uh, how he lived his life. And then we recognize our role in this narrative, right? Back to this garden in in Eden and new city in Revelation, right? Like we fit into this narrative. We exist on this timeline. And like Nehemiah, uh, I believe that we are uniquely positioned Right? As the church, as image bearers who are redeemed, we have this direct connection to the most creative, most innovative, most artistic, best builder, best developer, best designer, best cultivator that the world has ever known. It's our Father God. right? And therefore, I feel like we should be creating things, not necessarily copying things. And in our creativity, we should be creating uh, places for people to come to experience the joy, love, and peace that is experienced in the kingdom of heaven. And so just some, some thoughts here. Uh, I think that um, we, we, as the church, sometimes we get in a habit of copying a standard that exists in the world instead of thinking creatively of how we can do maybe things a little bit differently. Okay, so my background is education. That's what I do. Uh, when COVID happened, I was blown away uh, at the pictures we were seeing from the Spanish flu. Y'all remember seeing some of those pass around? That's 100 years ago. What blew me away is that the classrooms looked exactly the same as they do now. Like, think about that. In 100 years, we were still, 100 years later, putting kids in desks, sitting in rows, right? That's what they were doing back in these photos. And I saw that, and I'm like, what? What? Like, everything else in 100 years has advanced and progressed. Like, why are we still doing kind of this the same way? And there are people in education who are saying the same thing. And they're doing things very creatively. They're doing things very differently. There's a school on the South Shore that um, just won a grant a few years ago. And one of their, their ideas is that we're going we're gonna to teach 
everything we do, we're going to teach through the lens of trying to help prevent coastal erosion. Because that's a big deal in South Louisiana, right? And so they teach all their subjects through this, this lens of trying to solve the problem of coastal erosion. And one of their big ideas is they were going to build classrooms on a barge and actually have students get on a barge and bring them out down the Mississippi River and, like, see this stuff firsthand. Um, and they're, 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 like, trying to do – they got a $10 million grant for this idea. So they're, they're trying to get there, right? That's creative. That's, that's people who design things. That's people who are made in the image of God. But if they're not redeemed, what they're doing is they're just turning people onto man as the solution for things, right? And as followers of Jesus, as the church, we can take that same creativity – but do things in a way that point people to Jesus, point people to the Savior that they need. And we could bring in the process flourishing to those around us. We can bring justice and mercy. We can address the outcries. And so what does this mean? Maybe, maybe it means that if you're a business owner, you run your business in such a way that you're pouring back into the community, that you're providing jobs for people, that you're bringing restoration to the neighborhood that we live in. Maybe if you're a teacher, it means that you teach in such a way that you help uncover kind of this awe and wonder that God laid out for us to discover in the world. And we teach people more about who he is through uncovering kind of the natural things of this world. Maybe if you're in the medical field, it means that you bring help and healing through your practice, that you restore families through health because of your presence in their lives. Maybe if you're in politics or law, you uh, help bring justice through your policies and your practice. You create legislation. You defend people that have been um, the recipients of injustice. If you're an engineer, maybe you help design things to help bring order to chaos, right? Think about all the infrastructure issues that we have. Engineers, you're needed in your creativity. And so all of this leads to us helping build a world that flourishes, helping build a world where people can be reunited with this heavenly father. Um, And so kind of last point here, um, Jesus said this in a prayer. When people asked Jesus, they said, how are we to pray? And you're familiar with this. Jesus said, pray like this. You know, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then what did he say? That thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what was cool about Jesus in this prayer that he gave um, is Jesus being present on earth. He was the embodiment of God for people. Um, John 1.14, it says that not only did he put on flesh to dwell amongst people, but it's because of his dwelling and presence among people that they were able to perceive the fullness of God. That people understood who God was because of Jesus' presence in their life and the embodiment of God's truths that he offered to people. And so that prayer, that kingdom come, that, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's a prayer that I think echoes for us today that uh, in the same way that Jesus' presence embodied who God was to people, because of the presence of God that exists in us through the Holy Spirit, the church can embody God's truths to people as well. And as we navigate our lives and as we hear outcries and as we respond to those people who are in need, as we bring justice and mercy, as we kind of bring peace and shalom, as we do all of this, what we're doing is we're helping people see and taste that the Lord is good. We're helping make the kingdom of heaven tangible for people to experience, for people to live in, for people to enjoy. We're helping people understand who God actually is. And so um, that is the best question that anyone's ever asked me in class, just being honest. Um, 
all of this came from me thinking through that answer to that question. Not last night, but just over the last few months. And for me, um, to recognize that I exist kind of in this timeline of where God wants to use me and, and, and work in and through me, um, it makes me want to be more attentive to what's going on around me. It makes me want to listen to the outcries the way that Nehemiah listened to the outcries. It makes me want to go to people the way that Nehemiah stood and, and went to people, the way that Jesus went out to people. And so I hope um, I've been blessed as I've just been pondering this. And I hope in some way, maybe this morning, that was a, a blessing for you as well. So would y'all please pray with me uh, as we close? Father, thank you for uh, your patience and your grace with us. Thank you for um, challenging and inspiring us uh, through people. Thank you for... Um, Jesus and the gift of salvation and redemption that we have through his blood. Uh, and thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for loving your creation despite the ways in which we've uh, maybe failed you or been disobedient or not been faithful. Uh, God, you remain faithful even when we're not. And so I thank you for all of that. Uh, I pray today um, that we would have ears that would hear the outcries of our world. Um, and some of that, maybe we feel so disconnected and far away from it. We don't really know what to do. Uh, but some of that, God, it's in our backyard. Literally, it might be in our family, in our own, in our own home. Uh, some of that might be in our place of work with a coworker or with a friend. Or some of that might be um, just in the community uh, that we live in. God, help us to be attentive to that. Help us to respond. Help us to realize that uh, because of your Holy Spirit that indwells all believers, we actually embody your truths to people. And we can help people understand um, this kingdom of heaven uh, better because of the way that we interact with people. So help us be motivated by that. Help us to be inspired by that. God, give us uh, wisdom and, and how to handle certain things. Give us the words to say. Give us the, the um, desire to just uh, see people and love people the way that you do, God. Thank you so much uh, for all you're doing. Uh, we ask this in your name. Amen. As we close this morning, uh, we'll just go ahead and remind ourselves uh, of our, the commission that Jesus gave his disciples, also the commission that we, um, we take upon ourselves here. Uh, so y'all read this with me. Um, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Y'all dismissed. Thank you.